0: you have the notes that's in the weekly bulletin, I encourage you to take those out. They're going to aid us this morning. We're going to be in a variety of different sections of scripture, and so uh, uh just get you to hang tight with me. We're going to be there in just a moment to be able to unpack. It's not one take or passage we're going to be pulling from. We're going to pull from all over, uh, but I do encourage you to have your Bibles out and open and ready uh, as we do dive into text. I love that song. Uh, Courtney, thank you and band for leading us, and and. uh in worship of our king. And there's a great preacher that begin to talk about Jesus. And he says, that's my king. Do you know him? And that's what our desire is, is that in knowing him, we would be led by this great and glorious shepherd. And this great and glorious shepherd has now departed from us. He's no longer physically present here on earth with us, our great and glorious shepherd. But we do know he will return and in his return he will make all things right and he will make all things new and he will put right what is wrong and we look forward to his return in that he promised he would be with us not in his physical body but by the power of the holy spirit that indwells us as believers that's cleansed us as believers that's regenerated us this makes it means that the word born again means that we are born from above And God has radically transformed us from the inside out that now those statutes, those commandments, the Old Testament and its laws and regulations have been fulfilled in Christ and now will be modeled and will be obeyed in us, not because of works that we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us and the Spirit of God does in us. And in that departing and sending the Holy Spirit, he's left us an order of how we ought, First Timothy chapter three, how we ought to behave until he returns. This household of God, this that, this church of the living God, this pillar and buttress of the truth. He's left this church to be in order and to behave well, and in that he has left elders to oversee the flock of God, not my flock. Not the flock of other pastors and elders, his flock, the flock of God, that he appointed elders for that and um, uh, in that ordained elders in that and will hold elders accountable for his body because why? That flock of God because he bought them with his own blood. So it's a serious task, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Was then How does all this play out? How, how even churches are structured and that's where you see in your notes here this study on polity and that might be a word you're not familiar with and so we want to just first define what polity is and then talk about why polity is important for us as we study this morning so first in your notes there what is church polity what, what does that mean and church polity is basically the governing system of the church the governing system of the church and so the system of governing defines who has authority within the local body, and how authority impacts the relationships between the leadership of the church and its members, as well as the local assembly, the corporate gathering, and those outside that local assembly. So the question is, is who has the highest authority within the local church? Meaning, when decisions need or have to be made, how do we come to make those decisions? And so this will begin to... Governing system is how we begin to talk about, well, how does this play itself out within the local body? And depending on our forms of government, we're going to look at a variety of forms of government here, it, it, it may change in how that looks like. So we may have a, a body outside of our local assembly that would tell us what to do. It might be that it's, there's a form within our local assembly that tells us to do, what to do, or even there's a combination of both. There's leaders within our church and leaders that are accountable to leaders outside of our church who would hold us accountable to this governing, this leading out within the family of Christ. And that's what we want to talk about this morning is church polity. Now, just a big so what, right? So the question has to be posed, why is this important? And it's in this that we begin to talk through, as God has done in all these other areas of our life, to be able to talk through authority and our submission to authority. When you think about how this thing plays out, the three institutions of the church, marriage that was instituted in the garden, right and in that institution of marriage god begins to lay out immediately head and helper governing authorities right so how is the family managed and you begin to see head helper begin to walk through in genesis chapter 2 and as you continue on you begin to see governments being being put into place some of the first forms of governments you begin to see as far as even the people of god and the theocracy that begins to be laid out in exodus chapter 18 you begin to see now you got this representative government being given uh, instruction from Jethro to Moses. And then in that, you continue to see various forms of government to be put forth, and even in the context of Romans and other New Testament passages, that we should submit to our governing authorities. And you see, once again, uh, head and, and those who would be submissive to this particular uh, authority. And so the Bible would command that we should submit to our governing authorities, which is the second institution. And the third institution we have is the church. God instituted his Bride. And now the question is, is, where is authority reside there? And we all all in these forms of government and we'll talk through in just a moment, would all say Christ is head. But then delegated authority, who's now responsible now since Christ isn't physically present with us. And I say physically present. You don't see his physical, tangible body, the nail scarred hands and inside of Christ and his feet uh, scarred by the nails. You you don't see the physical Christ, you see the physical Christ's body through his local assembly. But then who has charge of the local assembly? And so I want us to look at in this, what that means is that the governing process, and that's our church polity, how we're governed, and what are the major forms of church governance? And there's three major ones we look at, and I think hopefully this will even help us, as we look at other Protestant denominations within there to help us to begin to see how those work. And I'll list them all and then unpack those for you. So the three major forms of church government, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Congregational. We're going to unpack those one at a time and, and uh, walk through those, but just wanted to give those to you. So number one, Episcopalian. So what does it mean to be part of the Episcopal church? And so this is a system of government that has a group of church officers, right? So we look at what officers are, and we, we're going to see, in the scripture, we see two major offices, the office of elder and the office of uh, uh, elder overseer pastor with all synonymous terms and then deacon and so they would have a group of church officers known as the priesthood and the final authority is found outside the local church so the local church does not govern itself it it receives instruction it receives its authority it receives its permission to do things from a, a body outside of the local assembly so if we were episcopalian which we're not we're episcopalian then we would receive from outside of us instructions on things that we could or could not do so what does that include It includes methodist denomination include include anglican episcopal of course and roman catholic churches that would fall outside of the protestant churches and so when you look at protestant uh, churches you're going to see the episcopal church uh, as far as the denomination is going to be the primary representative within that form of government and so how does it work you see there in your in your notes it begins with an arch bishop an archbishop would be responsible for then a variety of bishops under his care and then those bishops uh, underneath his care would be over a dio- diocese which is this local churches. is the name for local churches and in those local churches there would be a rector or a priest that would be overseeing that local congregation and so the congregation would have a rector or a priest that priest would then be uh, responsible to a bishop and then that bishop would oversee a variety of Diocese of the variety of churches, and as a result of that, then he would he would answer to an archbishop, and so you see this this succession of leaders that would be brought forth there, and so all of those archbishop, bishop, rector, or priest would all be considered priests as they have been ordained into the Episcopalian priesthood, and so that's why it said this is a government of church offices known as the priesthood, and so once again, as you begin to see, especially outside of Protestants, into um, kind of like more of a Roman Catholic traditions, that they would then link that priesthood all the way to the Pope, and the Pope would have a succession of Popes all the way back to uh, St. Peter, which would be, was thought of as the first Pope. And so they would think and believe there would be a lineage of Popes and this, this hierarchy, hierarchical system that would begin to lead forth from Peter, right? And that they would even be, even other names for their rector or priest would be a vicar, a mouthpiece for God. And so it can be; it's a potential, potential very deadly thing when people begin to think uh, they speak for God. And so that would be, in a general that would be Roman Catholic, but in a general sense, Episcopal. This is the form of government that's there; that's governed. So the key question here is: Who are you governed by? They're governed by uh, authorities outside of the local church. Number two, that's Episcopal or Episcopalian. Number two, Presbyterian. And it's interesting to know these denominations, by the way, are where we derive mostly our names for for pastor, elder, bishop, right? So uh, Episcopos is where we would receive overseer or bishop, and this is where the Episcopal derives its name, and why bishop is going to be the primary person here that's going to be the overseer for a variety of churches, and an archbishop overseeing those those bishops, and so on and so forth. And so then you're going to see presbyterian where we presbyteros where we would receive elder the name elder in our new testament so that's what you're going to see as the primary governance there so this is a system of government is governed by elders where some of the elders have authority over their own local assembly but also other assemblies both locally and denominationally through the presbytery and the general assembly so here's how this works so you've got the general assembly who would be over the denomination whether it's a regional or national and they're going to be overseeing this network of churches. And so then you've got the general assembly that's made up of individuals from the presbytery. And the presbytery is now the, the, the session right, or the group right below them. And they're made up of those from the session. And sessions would be elders who are elected from local congregations. So here's how it works. You've got a congregation who elects local elders, and those elders gov- help govern their own local church. Some of those local elders would then make up, and that session would then make up the presbytery, and then that presbytery would help govern over those churches, and then eventually some of those that would come out of that presbytery would make up the general assembly and would govern over those churches with real authority. So it's not just representative and and thought patterns with real authority there. And so you begin to see that there's a governance of elders, and that you have, yes, elders governing their own assembly, but not with final authority. They're not self-governing. They have some authority, but then it's also uh, submitted to the uh, not only the session of their local elders, but the presbytery, or, uh, presbytery, and then the general assembly. So they're not self-governing, all right? So that's Presbyterian. Upon which the picture there would be the Presbyterian Church as we know it, right? Then there's two various forms: PCA and USA Presbyterian churches, all right. So then you, that's two forms: Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and then Congregational, right? So this system of government is self-governed, and the final authority resides with the local congregation, and not by any outside structure or body. So every church is self-governing in a congregational format. Now, however, there are various forms of self-governing seen, but in each case, the final authority rests within the local assembly. So just because you say you're self-governing doesn't mean all govern themselves the same way. It just means that however they choose to govern themselves, is the means by which that church is self-governing, and they don't answer to any outside entity, but it doesn't mean that every one of them is going to look the same way. So the local church may partner, as we do, with associations, and then in those associations, they make up conventions, and then even conventions within a denomination. But those associations, conventions, denominations have no ruling authority within the local church. So the SBC, for us, the Southern Baptist Convention, is something that we partner with. We agree with their Baptist faith and message, which is our theology we agree with that and so we say we're going to partner with other churches and so they didn't divide that up within associations so it'd be geographically with other uh, area churches uh, nearby us would be our association the various associations would represent the state convention and then the state conventions would all be come together where into uh, into the southern baptist convention where then the churches communicate and work together and they vote on things but it's voting on things as we partner together to accomplish work and ministry so Part of that, your dollars would go to Southern Baptist seminaries that would be able to take through that, to North American Mission Board for North American Missions, to International Mission Board for International Missions. And this cooperative program, this cooperative mindset where churches who are self-governing come together, they give money together, they they decide where those monies are going so that they could do, create a greater work. But it's not that it's a governing authority that tells the churches what to do. Does that make sense? And so this this is why we walk through this, and it's a distinctive, very Uh, at the heart and and core of baptist churches and so your point there is whereas there was a governing body outside the other churches within the episcopalian and presbyterian denominations here in the congregational the local church is autonomous and all that simply means is self-governing it governs itself now how does it govern itself and you're going to see that in your notes what are the different forms of congregational government how does the church self-govern and you're going to see Six types that we're going to walk through very briefly here. And then, um, and then of those, you're going to see the first three are the, are the most common. And the last three are the most uh, are not as common as the top three that we're going to walk through. So we're, so we're going to walk through top three are going to be the most common. They're not in any particular order necessarily, uh, but they're going to be the most common. And it's, and it's as it's seen in Southern Baptist circles and outside of Southern Baptist circles. So. And just by the way, just FYI, if you're not in the Southern Baptist world, we are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And you don't have to live in the South to be Southern Baptist, right? So just FYI, you might think, That's, I knew that. Not everybody knows that. I remember the first time I ever going to realize, I was like, there's a Southern Baptist church in the Northwest. How does that happen? Right? right, they're not even, they have no geography. Like, how did that work, right? So you have to be in the South to be Southern Baptist. It's the denomination in and of itself. And so it's the name, not geographic location. So, all right, so congregational simply means self-governing. Now, how would they govern and here are various forms that we're going to look at. Number one, single elder government or pastor el- or, or a single pastor government. You could use those terms interchangeably. And so this simply means uh, that you have a pastor who is uh, like, like we were currently structured, a pastor led church and he can work with deacons. He can work with committees. He can work with a variety of other things, but ultimately the final authority rests with the singular pastor. And so uh, it would be pastor, as far as the authority, working through and with a variety of other means, and then it's to the congregation. So the final authority would rest with the single elder government. So we're talking who has final authority. Number two, you have pastor-deacon government. Now this is can get a little messy uh, in that they acknowledge two, two, uh, the two offices of the church. They acknowledge the pastor in its singular sense, and they acknowledge the deacon in its I, guess, I assume its plural sense, and they form a board a governing board where they would begin to rule together. And so they're exercising authority on behalf of the congregation with the pastor and the deacons. And so basically the deacon and pastors join up to make uh, a voting committee, if you will, that then puts forth the direction that church is going to be heading and makes decisions on behalf of the church with those with that model. So they represent to the church its leadership, and it's a board. So I'm going to walk through... Um, just in general, and I'm, I'm walking through pros or cons at this particular time, I'm just going to walk through this so you have an understanding. So single elder, single pastor government is the first one, pastor, deacon government, and then third, plural elder government. And I want to distinguish this as we're, we're, we are talking still about congregational churches. So plural elder government would look and you say, well, that's exactly what a Presbyterian is. It's a plural elder government, right? But it's not based in the, only in the local assembly. So you, another way you could say that it's a plural um, – um, Local elder government, because ultimately the local uh, elders would be the ones who would govern, not elders from um, the presby- presbytery or the general assembly, right? So we're only talking about local government, we're talking about congregational church. And so we talk about a plural elder government that the elders would have the final authority and say for the congregation and in its, in, in its, uh, its communication and its authority to them. So these are the three most common, single elder, single pastor government, pastor deacon government, and then plural elder government, are going to be the three most common. And then you're to have three that are not as common. You're going to see the corporate board government. Corporate board government. Um, and it's modeled after modern corporations where you have a kind of a board of directors. It's made up of a variety of members within the context of the church. And here they would, uh, they would hire then if they looked as, they, as that board of directors would, would work and function. They would see the pastor then as somebody who we hire to work for us. And so it would be almost like you have the board of directors or the board of trustees, if in a sense, and a business model, and then they would hire uh, uh, some form of a chief executive officer that would, uh, we would work for the board, but the board has ultimate authority and say within that local church. And so this was similar uh, to our structure here with council, church council-led. The pastor was with them, but not exactly. So uh, it's not synonymous with where we were, but it's similar in its approach and, and how we would come to um, the church when I came. Uh, its governance was led. So similar to uh, corporate board government and a little bit kind of a hybrid between it and pastor deacon government. And then number five, democratic government. This is pure democracy, right? So when you get together, there's no one who really has authority over another. There's not any kind of a governing body. When the body gets together, you vote on topics and, and whatever those decisions need to be made and Uh, majority rules, whatever that majority needs to be. If it's 51%, 75%, 80%, whatever, majority rules. And so that's a simple, sheer democracy, democratic government would be what that democratic government would look like. And then lastly, not super common, but is out there, is no government whatsoever, none, zero. Like we just let the Holy Spirit ride and he does what he wills and we yield and submit to him. And so it's literally this this almost overly spiritual kind of a mindset and there's not really any any direction would be provided from the scriptures and it's all just submit to the holy spirit. And so you think well do we see that uh historically that was the Quakers and uh, the Plymouth Brethren would be the historical uh background for some of those churches that would not believe in a an official form of church government. So there you have it. So these are our three major forms uh of governance, so governance how who has final authority in the church. We looked at that's polity. Three major forms Episcopalian, right? So you're going to see the succession from the Pope, succession from the, big, the early days, uh, from the first century. And there needs to be someone who's going to be governing the churches, making sure there's a watching after that. And and there's, you can see there's reasons why that understanding. So I don't want to bypass that. When you begin to see there were apostles and prophets that were the foundation of the early church. And so apostles were, the gospel was spreading. And so you had to have somebody where this began, where it began with the 11. And then the 12 when Matthias got brought on, and then you begin to see Paul being added to that, and even potentially Barnabas as an as a, as a apostle, and then he, those guys being sent out. And so as you begin to see this, it, there had to be this understanding and structure, and so I, I see that, but what you begin to see is after the apostles left, the word of God was completed, and the elders were being put into place, and you see from the very first missionary journey, elders were being put into place, into place at each of the local churches in Acts fourteen twenty three. and so... There was a desire for elders to be put in place, as we've seen Walt. But I I can see where they get there. I don't agree with it, but I can see how the Episcopalian church derives its government. And then you see Presbyterian, and it's kind of the same model that you see Paul appointing others to be able to do this. We've got to remember, once again, the time where you had apostles, and then apostles ceased because you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus and received your commission from Jesus. And so you don't see that today being the case. They're not— breathing out the scriptures or god breathing out the scriptures through individuals and so the canon the word of god has been completed and so i see the presbyterian form i agree with much the presbyterian form because they really highlight elders but i don't see that other local churches and other outside entities would or would have authority over local assemblies each one should stand alone so we would be congregational self-governing and then in that then how do you see that you see the six forms single elder or single pastor government pastor deacon government plural elder government Corporate board government, democratic government, and no government whatsoever. And so we would be setting forth, and we've been teaching through for some time now, uh, a plural elder government. And so the question is, what are the reasons for selecting such said government, right? So what would be the reasons for selecting a plural elder government? And this is where you're going to be rapid firing our scriptures. You think, man, you've been preaching now for some time, and we haven't gotten to a single scripture here. Here's where we're going to be again to walk through that. But I needed you to understand history, and I need you to understand polity, So it would make sense what we're discussing and why that would be the case. And so what are the reasons for selecting a plural elder government? Number one, we see a plurality of elders leading the local church. We see a plurality of elders leading the local church. So Acts 14, 23, as I alluded to earlier, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fast, they committed unto the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they're appointing elders in every church. So a plurality of elders in every church would be what you see from the very first missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So he understood, man, I'm I'm walking through this process, and I need to establish government uh, within there so they could be order, and you could guard doctrine, you could watch doctrine. And what you can think through now in line of, that's why we went systematically through this the way we have, why we need to understand the offices of those individuals and the office of an elder as he would provide care for, he would protect, he would shepherd the body of Christ, he would oversee the body of Christ, he would be a mature believer, elder in the body of Christ, and, these, and he would be watching after the souls of the body of Christ. And so this is one of the things you see a plurality of elders. Not only do they see it there, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so in that particular 1 Timothy 5, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's at Ephesus, and at Ephesus, what do you see? A plurality of elders. Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honors. That's the instruction he's given to Timothy to pass on to that local assembly. Titus 1.5, Paul's telling Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you assume that there would be a local church in every town, and every town there would be elders that would be there to lead those particular churches. One of the clearest examples of a plurality of elders in one local church is James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So the singular church, individual at a singular church, calling for a plurality of elders to be able to pray for him and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And in 1 Peter 5, 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so you're seeing him exhorting a plurality of elders, and he says, upon which I am one of those uh, among you. And so in that, we see a plurality of elders leading the local church. And so where you would see a singular level where it would be a a priest, or rector from the Episcopalian, uh, I would agree with uh, having a plurality of elders uh, as in the Presbyterian and in the Congregational, I would set forth a plural plural, uh, elder government because you see them in Scripture. Number two, we do not see deacons ruling with elders, but as servants to the local church. And so as we look at one of the forms of congregational government, the pastor-deacon government, right? So that's where they were working as a board together. Only problem is you don't see deacons ruling that way. and, and You don't see deacons simply serving. They're not being given authority to watch over uh, the souls of men, not being given authority to care for the flock, to protect the flock, to provide for the flock and a teaching sense, uh, to rebuke uh, in, a, in a manner that, and contradicts uh, those who would go against the Scriptures you see in Titus and in Timothy. Uh, they're not called to be able to teach, and so you don't see in any way they're they're ruling over or with the elders, but they're simply servants to the local church. Even the name deacon, Diaconus means to a servant, a recognized servant to the local to the local church in its official capacity. The name deacon means in, in in that sense. And so when you begin to think through that, that's what they're called to do. Whereas elders, as we already seen in First Timothy five seventeen, let the elders who rule, who rule well, be considered worthy of Double honor, and so they are ruling. Whereas you see deacons serving in that capacity, and this is what First Timothy five seventeen would communicate. Number three, while plural el- elder government, we see the mandate of elders keeping watch over the souls of the local assembly. We see the elders keeping watch over the uh, the souls of the local assembly. Here in in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse seventeen, it says, "Obey your elders." And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you need to obey and submit them. We'll talk about that next. But before we talk about that, why would you want to obey and submit to them? Because they have your best interests at heart. They're keeping watch over your souls. That's a heavy, weighty thing to begin to think about. Where are you going to spend eternity? Why would you? Why would we care about that? And why would that be important? Because... There will be some who will be, who will be deceived. They genuinely think they're born again, and they're not. And it's to cause the pastor, the elders, to warn them to examine themselves and to see if they are genuinely in the faith. And so this is what they're called to do, to watch after the souls of the people. When you begin to think about what it means to watch after the souls of the people, you see Paul addressing this in Acts chapter 20. This was our reading plan for this week. In Acts 20, and Paul begins to talk about in Acts 20 that he did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, he was teaching in public and from house to house. He was testifying both to Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he begins to tell them that he's now constrained to go die for the faith and that ultimately they're not going to see him again. And to listen to these words that he says. and I want to unpack this just a little bit so we can understand the magnitude of what's being shared here. So Paul says, you're never going to see me again. You're not going to see me face to face again because I'm going to die. And it And it just overwhelms them you see at the very end of this passage they hug him and they're weeping with him and they kiss him and they're embracing him and they even accompany him all the way to the ship seeing him off because they love him he's guarded them with the word of god that's what it says here in acts chapter 20 verse 26 therefore i testify to you this day that i'm innocent of the blood of all of you what a weird thing to say i'm innocent of the blood of all of you "'For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God.' And then he begins to give them instruction. "'Pay the careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the, for the church of God, not the church of the pastor church of the elders. The church of God belongs to God. We're just servants. "'Which he obtained with his own blood. "'I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock.'" And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I not ceased night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what's, what do you want us to get out of this, Pastor? Well, once again, the mandate is that elders are keeping watch over your souls in the local assembly. They have final governing authority because why? They're here to protect you, to feed you, and to minister to you, and to serve you. And in that, there's responsibility given to them. And in that process, responsibility given to them, they need to be as watchmen who watch after souls, innocent of your blood. That's what Paul was saying there. Now, once again, I I alluded to that. That's kind of a weird thing to say, is it not? Innocent of your blood. And he tells why he's innocent, because he didn't shrink back from declaring anything that would be helpful for them from the whole counsel of the Word of God. Now where does this idea of watching over men's souls and being guilty of their blood come from? Is there any idea in the scripture where that would be the case? Anybody have any ideas? This is time where you can respond back to me? Ezekiel. Ezekiel thirty three. So you have a Bible. Turn to Ezekiel thirty-three. We're going to read one through nine. I just want to show you this in Scripture to understand how important this is, and the and the reasoning why they would be watching after your souls within the local assembly. Ezekiel thirty-three. And this will be brief. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to unpack all of Ezekiel. I Just want to read it to you, so you have an idea of this watchman. And so, this is what's really interesting in your reading plan this week from Acts chapter twenty was there was a distinguishing of Paul between watchmen and wolves, distinguishing between watchmen and wolves. He said, I was a watchman. I'm encouraging you to pay careful attention to yourselves and others as you care for the church of God. Be good watchmen. Be innocent as I'm innocent of their blood. And be careful, though, because there's wolves coming who don't want to be watchmen, right? You think about it. A shepherd loves the sheep, right? And wolves love the sheep. They just love them in really different ways, right? Shepherd loves the sheep. Wolves love sheep. They don't look the same way in how they love one another, right, and how they would love the sheep, and so we want to be careful. So Exodus 30, or Ezekiel 33, beginning in verse 1, God speaking to Ezekiel uh, as Israel's watchman, and it's what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, speak to your people, and I will say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming, and the sword be it re- represented there, God's judgment through an army, he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people that if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So you put a guy upon the gate; he's looking out to see who is out there, who's coming. And sometimes, as a watchman, you see the king returning. Right? He would sound the trumpet. That the king's returning. That's what we're listening for, right? And when our king returns, we've got watchmen watching for the king to return. So while we herald and proclaim to you, be ready, the Son of Man may come back at any moment. Because why? I'm a watchman. I'm a watchman. And I'm looking out not just for the enemy, but I'm looking out that the king may return. So the king is absent. I'm looking for the banners that should begin to show, man, that's my king. And he's coming. He's coming home. Right? But then they're also there, as we see, if the sword is going to come upon the land, they're out there looking, and they would sound the trumpet to warn the people. And he says, and if the people don't take heed to your warning, that's not on you. It's not on you. That's why Paul says, I'm not not guilty of any, I'm innocent of everyone's blood, because I did not shrink from declaring anything to you. I was a faithful watchman. And he continues, verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warnings, talking about the one who didn't, didn't, re, didn't receive the warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any, any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So it doesn't still remove guilt from the, the transgressor. They're still held accountable for their own sin. But, man, they didn't get the chance to hear the warning. And that's going to be at the hand of the watchman. So you, verse 7, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now go back to Acts chapter 20. What did he say? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to others. It's a faithful watchman and ensure as we watch over the souls of others, that, and I'm held accountable. And that's exactly what he says in Acts 20. You were appointed by the Holy Spirit and you were accountable to the Lord Jesus because he purchased the body of Christ with, at the church of God with his own blood. And this is the mandate that's been given to elders as they rule well we see the mandate of elders keeping watch over the souls of the local assembly number four reason for selecting a plural elder government we see the command to obey and submit your leaders within the local assembly it's the same verse we were looking at earlier hebrews thirteen seventeen, but instead of focusing on the elder portion of that keeping watch over their souls as one who will give an account um, we see the other aspect obey your leaders and submit to them now i know as an elder I know as a pastor, that's a really difficult thing to be able to say. It is for me to be able to say here, and even though I, I will say it because of what the Bible says. And I'm, I didn't say it, God said it. But it seems a little bit self-serving to be able to say, now, every one of you need to submit to me and obey me. Right? I mean, it's, I'm just being transparent. It feels awkward, right? However, it is what the Scripture says. And so the question you and I have to ask is, well, what does it mean to obey your leaders and submit to them? How does that practically f- play itself out and function in our day-to-day activities? Does it mean anything to us? How are you submitting to your elders and how would you not submit? How would you obey them or submit to them? I mean, think about that. If it's just optional, everything that we do, how do we obey and submit to them? It's, it's a literal rendering, it's a literal meaning. It has a literal function that takes place. So, how would we do that? And can I just be honest with you? That's why we're cautious about not making sure we have every day of the calendar filled because uh, with activities. Now, we're not anti activities, but here's what we are saying. We are cautious with all we're putting on there because why? We we believe this has practical meaning. And if we had activities for Monday for a certain section of our church, Tuesday morning for another section of our church, Wednesday nights for all the section of the church, Thursdays for another section, maybe a prayer meeting on another section, and all of a sudden you begin to look at, there's cross sections of the church being asked to be together, which the church should be submitting and yielding to and obeying what their leaders ask them to do. And if we you showed up for everything that we asked you to be able to do and we just... Completely clouded the calendar with all kinds of activities and events, we would be responsible for ripping your family apart. These these passages mean something. And we just want to be cautious. Like, not scared. We just want to be cautious. What we put forth is say, hey, we we want to encourage you to be here because why? We understand there's weight comes behind our recommendations. And so we should be cautious because this means something. And then not only you're supposed to do that, you're supposed to do it in some manner that it would create joy and not groaning, for that would be at no advantage to you, right? You complain all the time about this, and it, it wears on the elders that's trying to oversee your souls and care for you, and then that wouldn't be an advantage to you, would it not? And so it has a literal meaning. And so we've got to think through, well, what is that literal meaning? And so in that, if you're, why do we look for a plural elder government that would be the one who's overseeing has the final authority within the church is because the Bible says you should submit and obey them. And if you take that in, in line with 1 Timothy five seventeen. As I've alluded to several times already in this passage, the elders who rule well, what does it mean to rule? What would it mean to rule well? And if they do, they're considered worthy of double honor. Whatever that is, they're going to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so I think that's yet another reason. And the last reason, we see the language of their leadership within their office and their qualifications. We see the language of their leadership, this authority and this overseeing by their office and their qualifications, by their very office, that they're an overseer, a bishop, that they're a pastor, a shepherd, that would protect the flock, that would feed the flock, that would minister the flock, that would care for the flock, would rebuke the flock, carries with it authority. Now, with it, let me share a little bit. What So as we're thinking through this. How would this, how, do we, how, do, how do we know that's really what it means there? Okay, well, look at the qualifications. We've seen the name, the names, overseer, elder, shepherd, and we're going to think that. I, well, this is so same same terminology. Jesus is our great shepherd, isn't it? What the scripture says? He's our great shepherd, and we would submit to him. And who? How do we know we're his? We hear his voice and we obey his voice. I don't see the shepherd taking votes. All right, sheep, now think about a literal shepherd out in the field with literal sheep. What do y'all want to do today? Let's vote. What did it know? The shepherd knows what's best and leads them, anoints them, ministers them, protects them, fights for them, cares for them, feeds them. It's just it's the terminology. And so, yes, this is his flock, but elders are giving care for that, and so that's the authority that's been given to them as pastors or shepherds. Care for them, and so the authority is granted there. You think, well, if that's that's not enough, well, then think about the qualifications. Then, the qualification is a man must be able to manage on his own household well. We see from the very beginning of the institution of the marriage, head helper. That's not to say there's not communication. It's not say there's open dialogue. It's not saying that we're seeking wisdom from our our family. But at the end of the day, as a spiritual authority, there are times where I I look at what the scripture says and I say, "Thus says the Lord." I don't take a vote. That's not to say I can't take a vote. But when you see final authority, the final authority resides in the, the leader of the home. Now, the moment you say that, ultimately me says, well, listen, pastor, I understand submission, but if you, listen, you got to be careful in submission. And I would say, sure, you got to be careful in submission. You to submit to some form of sin. But I think that's the guy sometimes to be able to say, we don't really want to submit, period. I don't want to submit to my husband. I don't want to submit to his leadership. And so every time I'm going to throw out all these caveats. But wait, wait a minute. Think about this. Here's some cautions. I hear all those, and I receive every one of those. But it doesn't end. It doesn't disregard. At the end of the day, the husband is the leader of his household. And in that leadership of his household, this is the very qualifications for what not he can manage then the whole household. Why would it look different then? And if he's learning this model of leadership, that it would look different in this other model of leadership, right? If this is the means by which he either is qualified or not qualified, then why would you come over here and all of a sudden he's, there's a whole different form of leadership that he hasn't been trained in. But he's received his training ground because he manages his own household well, and then now it can be proven in a greater form within the entire local assembly. Because why? He's the leader. It's requiring others to submit to him. Now, the moment I say that, I, I've already told you, I've shown all my cards up front. It's awkward because I'm an elder. That's why i want to say that's why i welcome other elders to join me i don't want to do it by myself talked about the the reasons why it'd be helpful for us to have a plurality of elder last week as we we think to that supports pastors insufficiencies having a variety of those there they can round off his edges his insecurities and wisdom and encourages church unity protects the pastor from unjust criticism, promotes more harmony, creates support from the congregation as a covenant community, and it equips the church for ministry. Since the pastor is not solely responsible for all the demands within the church, more ministry can be accomplished as workload is shared among the leaders and greater accountability in that because why he's got a plurality of elders holding him accountable. So I, I say, I welcome that. But in this, as we look at the scripture and begin to see a form of government, and I think it's, most clear in scripture is a plurality of elders that have been given the responsibility to care for the for the for the flock. Now, in saying that, just as I would my own home, it doesn't mean that just because there's not a mandate that we should vote on everything, doesn't mean that we don't vote. Tracking with me? And hey, we we're gonna go to lunch today. I don't care. Well, I do care. We only have so much money to spend on lunch, so we can't go to Roos Chris probably wouldn't get, be good to go to you know somewhere really expensive uh so we don't have so much money so within those parameters right here's our, what we can spend on lunch today let's let's vote so all, all the clarity here is simply this i believe the final rest and authority resides with elders but it doesn't mean just because there's not a mandate to vote that is not prudence prudence and wisdom to vote i to make sure that's clear just because there's no formal mandate that we have to doesn't mean that the elders are so foolish to think that we never should. Tracking? If you're tracking with me. nod. Okay. I just want to make sure that you're able to say that because here's the key. Just as it would be, there's no question about final authority in the home. And when we, when we yield that, the final authority in the home is the husband. But in that final authority in the home, he would be foolish to think that ultimately, because he has final authority, that he should make every decision on his own. Be foolish to do so, not seek the counsel of others, not to seek the opinions of others, not to instruct others. But it does not negate the fact that he has final authority at the same time. That's the balance. So with that being said, last question. Pastor, that's kind of scary then. We're used to democracy. I might add, we're in the United States of America. Can I be honest with you? We're not pure democratic. We don't vote on everything. We're a representative democracy. We have representatives who make decisions that many times we are not happy with. Right? We're not happy with it at all. And so in that, you got to be careful. Do we see then democracy? Are we looking through the lens of our own culture into the Scripture? Or are we looking at Scripture for itself to, be able to see how this thing plays out? And so what's the most common objection or fear? Most common fear or objection is this. What about accountability? What about accountability and how do we hold these guys accountable if they're the ones responsible for decision making within the church how does that happen well, let me just take you one place 1st Timothy chapter 5 1 Timothy 5 it's in the same section where it talks about elders ruling well and they're being worthy of double honor it begins then in the next breath they begin to communicate well, what if they don't rule well how do you hold them accountable to not ruling well Here's what it says. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's writing to Timothy there at Ephesus to be able to say, don't allow just charges of gossip and slander to come against elders unless it's, you've, step one's happened. They've confronted the elder. They brought two or three witnesses in step two and before this thing would go to the church, man. Don't let people just—they have— bent against the pastor. I man, follow through with Matthew 18. Let this thing play out the way it's supposed to play out. Don't let these things come because people are upset. And so he says, man, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, those elders, who would persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Listen, God understands accountability. But God also understands authority. The watchman who is responsible for watching the people was also held accountable because what? God says he's going to be given an account. And if we don't warn and we don't do what God's asked us to do, God's ultimately the judge. and He will judge his people. So first of all, there's a great anointing or a great um, responsibility for the anointing of being appointed as an elder that first comes from the Holy Spirit. But even in that, the Bible would say that there's still an, an accounting and accountability that would be in that because why? The Word of God tells us as such. And so the individual pastor and individual elder is not above Matthew 18. There's still an accountability in that. And so in that, so then if it's not sin issues, it's not theology issues, so what is it? It's issues of preference. And it's issues of preference that really need not matter as much. But if we're talking theology and we're talk, talking uh, sin issues. These are the issues that need to be addressed and it can be brought in the light. Uh, as it says here in Matthew chapter, I mean First Timothy chapter five, verses nineteen and twenty. And so, in this, the goal behind all this is that church polity matters. How we would govern is important. And that I see, Pastor Tim sees. as We study through this and pray hope, prayerfully. Hopefully, you see it. Even as we unpack this throughout the week, unpack this next week, and our small groups begin to see, hey, this is the leadership that's there that we see in the context of the scriptures, more so than no government, more so than. Uh, a variety of others that have been to you know, democratic government where things voted on a board, corporate board government more than a pastor deacon, which is a weird form of government, or even a single elder government. We have to say a plurality of elders appears to be the most biblical government, and it's, a, it's autonomous churches, self-governing churches that would operate under the auspice upon which the scriptures have given us. And that with that, a plurality of godly men who fit in line with these qualification characteristics, which then ups the ante, does it not? make sure we have good men leading in the context of our our faith family and the elders would then aid in that process to be able to help that be the case both overseers and servants leading out um, servant deacons servants leading out by example and what they're doing and then elders and their teaching and the authority that's been given them in in that teaching to make sure they model that well and so there it is that's we say first church polity. You may have probably never heard a sermon on church polity before church governance. But I want to go thirty thousand foot view and to show you a variety of a variety of denominations and where we fit as a congregational church, which means self governing. And then of the various six forms, three being pretty popular, three being pretty uncommon. Where do we? Where would we see it being mo- we the leaders seem to be most biblical? Be a plural elder local elder form uh, of government uh, that the final authority rests with the elders. Uh, But in that, that they would desire to submit um, to the Lord, to each other, and then ultimately to be able to seek counsel from the body of Christ as they govern over that body. Make sense? Helpful? So if it's new to you, all right, then take some time. Don't just reject that. Take some time. Pray through that and search the scriptures to see if it's indeed what the scriptures teach us uh, and how we begin to govern through this process. And then pray, pray, pray. That God would help us to do what he's called us to do. And that ultimately that we, it would be about watching after the souls of men. And seeing those who are outside the body of Christ. Have the gospel communicated and shared with them. And them being born again. That's why. And this is why we've taken all this time. To walk through all these weeks of church. church um, About the church and how everything would work together. Because why? We, we knew where we were headed. We knew where we were going. And we've got two more weeks. Pastor Tim will leave the next two weeks for us as we look at spiritual growth and numerical growth and, or in the context of the body of Christ. Sometimes we look about whether or not we're healthy because of numerical growth only, and yet the Bible would say there's spiritual growth that we need to be looking at too. And both Can both be areas of demonstration of God's faithfulness and God's growth in our church? Sure. But at the same time, numerical growth is not always not, uh, an indicator of spiritual growth. Sometimes it can be quite the opposite, and so Pastor Tim will be leading us over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, we'll begin to put forth to you a constitution bylaws for us to look at, discuss, walk through together as a body of Christ. And so um, uh, you are going to have a chance to be able to look through things and talk through things and be comfortable with things. Uh, because our goal here is that you to be able to understand and not just. And so let me let's share something real quick. I know we're getting lack on, lack on time. There is something worse than questions, comments, and even criticisms. There's something far worse than Questions, comments, and even concerns or criticisms. You know what's worse? Indifference. I don't care. Whatever. I'm not committed. That's far worse. So we want you, that's why we're taking all this time. We want you to understand where we're headed. We want you to understand why we're headed there. We want you to understand biblically, this is what we see in the scriptures because why? It's to help us to watch after your soul so you don't feel domineering. These guys just do whatever they want to do. Ultimately, we want to empower you in the Word so that you can see, as I try to do in my own home, to model up before my family and say, it may feel like that, that man, you have no say, but you have a lot more say because when I'm trying to show you in Scripture that I, too, am just submitting to what God's Word says. That's what we're trying to do here. Take our time. Give you a chance to discuss it, talk through it, Even before we would put it before you so that you would even understand what the document means when you receive it. And so, can I also say this? Have we mapped out, we're in the process of writing, have we mapped out every single detail? No. So, here's what you may hear in the coming days as we begin to unpack this. Because we didn't want to map through everything, unpack everything for you. But as we do, I want you to know, it's not finished. And so, if you say, well, how does this play out, how does this play out, how does this play out? Um... We may not have all those details for you quite yet, but they're coming and we're we're working on that and we're looking at the scriptures to be able to make sure that we, we have it the most biblical we can before we present it church-wide to our whole faith family. So we told you in September, maybe before September, but by September for our next quarterly conference, you would have a copy in your hands of our new constitution and bylaws as far as the recommendation for the new constitution and bylaws. And so it's coming, all right. But if we we may not have everything spelled out quite yet, because we promised it'd be September. And it's not September yet, all right. So I just want to give you a heads up. It's where we're at. This is where it's what's coming. But we're trying to be completely transparent. Show you all the calls. show you show you everything. Everything's under the hood. Make sure you understand. We're not trying to hide or do anything. I mean, we just believe this is the way the Bible would have us to lead. We encourage you to prayerfully study and and um, engage in this process, which is why it's so important. If you're not a part of a small group next week at nine thirty, you would be a part and be able to discuss this with a local with other members of our local body to be able to reason this out and talk through this as we, go, we, we uh, dive into this together. Okay, Let me pray for us, and then Pastor Tim will come and give our final announcements as we, we study. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you, Father, that we have been radically saved. We've been forgiven much, and as a result of being forgiven much, we can forgive much. Thank you, Father. That as a result of that forgiveness, that ability, that Lord submission comes easier to us. We realize that in our own power and our own controls, we run amuck of the affairs and events of our lives, and so we readily yield to you. And that yieldedness to you is seen throughout in a variety of different forms, within the context of our marriages, in the context of our government, context of our churches, one to another. In Ephesians 5:21. And we're submitting one to another in this process. And so, Lord, we believe in the priesthood of believers. But, Lord, we also believe in the authority and the structures that you've placed within us. And so help us, Father, that we would manage our households well. That we would examine our own souls. We would lead our children well. And that, God, that we would honor and glorify you in our work, with our words, with our actions, our deeds, our attitudes. And, Father, you would be found faithful. And that, Lord, we give you all the honor and glory and praise for what you have done and are doing in our midst. I pray that we would study, show ourselves approved, rightly handling the word of God. I know that's directed primarily to pastors, but I pray it would be said of those who would one day be called to pastor it in order to the plurality of elders in our midst. But then even those family members of those that would be called, that, Lord, that we'd all study, to show, to make sure we understand what your word instructs and guides us to do. Pray for unity, Lord, as we desire to put forth a government that's pleasing to you. Without apology, we see landed in Scripture, firmly rooted in Scripture. We're confident, Lord, what your word is, what it communicates to us. So I pray that, that, Lord, this week as we study, that God, you'd help us. And then, Father, I pray, for needs that are in this room that were not touched directly through the sermon. And Lord, I know regardless of any sermon I preach, any topic I preach upon, any passage I preach on, it's not going to cover every need in this room. And so I pray that before we leave this room today, there would be transparency, there would be a confession of sin one to another, be uh, asking our brothers and sisters to intercede for us of communicating and seeking counsel uh, in a manner that's not full of gossip or slander, but meaning seeking counsel in manners that they need instruction and guidance from the body and that you allow the body to accomplish the one of the commands even before we leave this place today. Meet needs. And I pray for any in this room who has never repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in you. Then all this discussion of submission, all this discussion of being born again as we open our sermon with the Spirit of God that resides to help us and is even better for us that your Son would have Return to heaven to send this helper to us, this comforter. That, Lord, as any in this room, that your spirit would bring conviction of sin, need for the righteousness of Christ, and the forthcoming of judgment. They will be judged for that sin if they do not repent. And I pray today they would turn from sin and place their faith and trust in you, and they would seek out Pastor Tim or myself in the pastor's reception or any member that may have been to them or contacted them to be able to find out what does it really mean to be saved. So have your perfect will and way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.